And I'm having my dinner one night and one of the lads radioed and just said like, gas, gas, you need to get up to the bridge now. There's boats coming in. So I like ran up 15 flights of stairs, belly full of food. And when I got there, I was like completely like knackered. And I looked through binoculars and you could see these speedboats coming in, like cutting us off from port side. And I just knew straight away what, what, what it were about. And I was like, like hyperventilating and like, oh God. You know, like that fight or flight, you know, like if you've ever been out in a club and somebody starts off, you've, you don't want to fight. It was like that, I wanted to run away. More started coming in from port and starboard side and I just, I just thought we had to surrender. I just thought the only way we're gonna reserve any kind of percentage of life that we've got here is to surrender, but it was a really irrational kind of way of thinking because I knew that it was a, p a position where we couldn't negotiate an unnegotiable situation. And I was, I, it was the only point I think in my life where I thought I'm gonna die. And I just didn't wanna die. Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We're recording at the incredible Wheatwood Hall Hotel Podcast Studio. This is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma. We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex professional rugby league player and captain and now I guess I'm a bit of a podcaster, a speaker, actor, writer, entrepreneur. I'm still working all that out but at Mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose, resilience and what I believe is the new success inner peace. That sounds good. If you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you, it might be time to step up. If you want to start your journey with us, you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash coaching to join the best team you have ever seen. Here we go. Evolve Zoom live mashup. And we've got Gareth Timmons joining us today with CJ O'Connor on the mic as well. Um, it's not my name. <laughs> it's not his name. Um, Never been my name. Either. I'm buzzing. I'm buzzing. Just want to give a massive shout out to Weewood Hall Hotel for giving us this room facility at such short notice. And seeing the guys here um, with us and on Zoom. So thanks very much. We have got a legend. You're, 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 I'm going to say you're a Leeds legend, but you're a cast legend, aren't you? In recent times, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you've, you've, shot, you've gone all around the world, but yeah, sort yeah. of I let you times. down a bit there, yeah. mate. I did realise after you, uh, you'd, you'd seen so, that. You'd so seen Gareth that deadlifting 200 and 250 kilograms or something like that, and he's got a cast top on. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Gaz. Um, I thought it had kind of sabotaged this, yeah. this, this well, mate, really. <laughs> we nearly pulled it, mate. We? <laughs> we, nearly, we nearly pulled it. We nearly pulled it. Um, but uh -huh. we have got an ex-Royal Marines commando, um, turned psychologist. Yeah. Um, and Gareth has been all over the world. Um, I'm just about 60 pages through his book, becoming the 0.1%. And I'm loving every minute of it. It's literally a translation of what it was going through on each day of the training. Um, that's where I'm through now, and I'm sure it's going to pick up and get even better as we go. Um, thanks for everyone joining us, and thanks, 
Gareth, for, for coming in, mate. Pleasure, mate. How Pleasure. are you doing? I'm really well. I'm really well. It's just, uh, I've been, like I said, I've been watching this for for quite some time or watching what you're doing at, at Mentality. So it's just a pleasure to be on and be invited on. So thank you. Yeah, brilliant, mate. Brilliant. Um, we're so glad to have you on, pal. I just want to ask you, what drove you to, to get into the Marines? Tell me about what, why you, you got involved in the Marines. It, it kind of never been on my radar growing up at all. Uh, I started playing rugby at a young age. Uh, Ended up at Leeds, Leeds Academy 21s. Uh, I got offered a contract that I wasn't really happy with and I just valued myself a, a bit more, so I just walked away. And I'd kind of been saturated with rugby from being a young boy. My dad was a strength and conditioning coach at Cass. So I'd been involved in it from being like four years old. So I think when I got to the latter years of my teens, I'd kind of become saturated with it. Uh, and as a result, I, I left. Uh, I didn't have any plan B. I'd done, I'd done terrible at school. Arguably, had undiagnosed ADHD, so I really struggled leaving leaving Leeds and, and finishing rugby. It were almost like I've said before, like I just realised the earth were flat, the world were flat, and a bit like the Truman Show uh, in terms of the realisation of it. Went off the rails for a bit, uh, drinking and, and and taking recreational drugs, and I just oh, underlying, I always wanted to be successful and 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 really really see what I was capable of doing, both mentally and physically. There were a bit of a, a split identity where I'd go out on the drink and I'd be a different person looking for conflict and, and, and physical confrontation. But then when I was sober, I was very much uh, introverted and didn't want any, any kind of contact like that. So I wanted to just, just see who I was. I'd, I wanted to establish my identity and the Marines for me were just like a bit like the pinnacle of, of, of that test, that kind of realisation. And it just happened as a, as, a, as a split thing. One night I was watching Sky News when uh, everybody were in Afghanistan, uh, sorry, in, in Iraq and it showed you the Marines looking for Saddam's sons in Land Rovers. And, and I was just like, that's exactly what I want to do. I'd love to go to war and do that. Uh, and I literally, after a couple of days of <clears throat> 18 months of being in no man's land, I went to career's office and registered my interest to Joint Marines. Wow. wow. That's where that stat comes from, right? The 0.01% is from people who walk into the career's office. That's your success rate of actually making it in. Yeah, but I mean, there's a famous advert where you see a guy a couple of lads, but one, one lad in particular that's really young that's running across some woodland that happens to be Woodbury Common, uh, and he's doing the endurance course, which is the first commando test. And he gets stuck in the tunnel, and it's like, where'd you quit here, here or here? And at the end, it's like 99.9% .9 need not apply. And at that time in 2003, 2005, it were an actual statistic uh, that the odds of you making a connection with a careers office to then get into the end of training, you had a one in a thousand chance of doing it, of getting your green beret at the end. Did you think you would do it? Or did you think I'm just going to test myself and see? I were up against a massive, massive mountain. And I think the, the, what would have been devastating for me was, I absolutely conceptualized that me leaving Leeds as a failure, like I wasn't good enough. And that going into the Marines was such a massive test and the burden of failure on top of that for if I didn't pass 
would have just destroyed me as a person, I think. So it were a massive, it were a massive, massive commitment. But no, I didn't. I just thought, I'll go in and I'll just see how far I can get. I mean, I were in a bad place and I just thought, the, f the more time that I have in, the, in, in training is surely going to make me a better person. Uh, and that's what I wanted. I was just, just kind of lost and searching for. I'd also ruptured my cruciate ligament uh, playing rugby, so my knee would dislocate. And that were a massive gamble going in because I thought if the Marines policy was if you don't, uh, if you get an injury before week 10 and it's quite significant, they, they, they cut you out and a, a ruptured ACL were, were a big one. So I just thought if I can get past week 10, they'll keep me in and that's what I did. Like just reading the book, mate, and I've, I've you know, I've, I've not got through most of it as of yet, but it's like, it's just literally we'll talk about the training, but it's literally just throwing everything at you, throwing everything they can physically, mentally at you to just see if you'll quit. Yeah. And so you're, you're sat here as, as someone who don't quit basically, you know? Um, can you tell us a bit about what they did do and what they put you through? Um, and the book's great because it, it literally tells you each day the exercises, the the PT stuff that you you did, the training sessions. Can you tell us what what that was and break it down for us a bit? Because I, I think when people look at it and they go, Royal Marines, like it's hard. It's like a bit of a blur. Yeah. But why yours is great because it just like literally day by day breaks it down. It tells you to understand it. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? Yeah. So we rocked up and it's like putting like the Middle East aside, it's like the most hostile environment you can kind of walk into as a young lad. It's just, uh, like you said, you don't know which way to turn, who to look at and, or what to say. And you're just completely out of your comfort zone. And sleep deprivation is a massive part of it. They keep you up. I mean, between week eight and week 10, for, uh, for that two week period, we had 10 hours sleep and lads were literally like falling asleep, stood up and you'd like, you'd catch somebody falling asleep and then you'd fall asleep and somebody would catch you and it would just, just mental. And you get like really, really like big lads like you'd see at rugby. Mm -hmm. Somebody like JP or somebody like that, that looks, embodies the stereotypical ideal of masculinity. Mm -hmm. But uh, these people were like crying for the mums after two and three weeks because of sleep deprivation. And kind of what you're kind of left with at the end is like all the people that just look really geeky, like, the, like they'd never pass, but it's just all mental. Yeah. But like, just some of the stuff that they'll do, they'll come in and they'll just say, <clears throat> right, throw everything out your window. Like you've got like 10, nine, eight, and you just have to get everything and throw it out your window. And that can be two o'clock in the morning, <clears throat> which keeps you up. But like I've said in the book, one of the, one of the main things is, is like in foundation and in the first like couple of weeks of training, there's only two wash basins for like 60 lads. So you've got to like, not fight over it, but you've got to share the, share it out. But what it does is it means that you can't all wash your kit and get it ready for it morning without staying up all night. Uh, and that's that the sleep deprivation provides like the fabric of the adversity really. So who decides who gets to wash the kit first? Or is that just a filtering system? Well, you learn after, you learn after a bit of a filtering system, but you learn after a bit that you can get away with not washing certain kit and you can re-iron it. Right. But at the start, you're washing everything. Yeah. 
and you're ironing it and it, like you have, to have, you have to have a crease in the middle of your pillar and that crease then has to meet the crease on your sheets. And if it doesn't, you're like in, you're in the world of pain. Yeah. So like just, just going into it then as a young lad, like what did you have laid out ahead of you? What was the training? What was the test that you had to go through? How long was it? As in pre-joining? Yeah. Yeah, so Before I- Before uh, you get past as being able to be a recruit, like. Yeah, so I went to, I went to Leeds Careers Office. Uh, I then had to go to a fitness first in, in Leeds and, and run three miles in under 22 minutes on a treadmill. So I did that. Uh, I did that in about 17 minutes, just like smash that. And then a uh, psychometric test, I failed that on maths because again, I never applied myself at school because I thought I was going to turn pro rugby. Uh, so in between that, I went and worked as a lifeguard and in the money that I earned from that, I, uh, I ended up getting like a maths tutor, maths tuition, who, who taught me how to get better at maths. As a result, I'm quite competent at maths now, but at the time I was terrible. And I went back and resat re it and, and passed. And then I went in and you then have to go down on your PRMC, which was the PRMC. It's changed now, but it was uh, a three day selection course at Limston. And you go down and oh, like you're lined up in, in a shirt and tie and there's all the lads in various stages of training just saying like, go home, it's shit. Uh, it's going to break you. <laughs> like, look at state of him. And it's just like so uncomfortable. Uh, and you go into your blocks and I had a bit of an advantage because I've been away with rugby and I've been around the lads. So I kind of, I knew that I felt all right. I didn't feel comfortable, but I was certainly in a better place than some other lads. And then the f uh, some lads got sent home straight away because they were underweight, uh, under 68 kg. And the following day, the doors just flew open and they're like all these PTIs just ran in and they were like pulling people out of bed and they were like, get these effing boots on. And they kicked this locker and all these boots came out and uh, they were like, everybody outside, five, four, three. So you, you're frantically trying to put these boots and I had like a size 10 on and a size eight on the foot. <laughs> and uh, obviously you, you don't get out on time because that's, they build that into it. So we ended up having like 45 minute thrashing outside of stress positions, burpees, and you have to go and do a three mile run in under 22 minutes in boots that technically didn't fit. Uh, and then throughout that, you're just constantly under pressure and tested throughout that three days. And the 60 or whoever, whoever's on the PRMC is just dwindling all the time. They're just coming up to you and saying like, you're never gonna make it. You may as well, you may as well go home and lads are just like, yeah, all right. And is that the easy part as well, like compared to the rest of what you? No, the P, well, the PR, long, the PR. That's a long weekend, isn't it? That before the. Yeah, the three days was. So that was like, but did it get harder later or was that oh, deliberately it, it, hard to break to kind of. The weed out. Yeah, yeah. Who the one and then. I presume it's not holiday after that. No, <laughs> God, no, no. The start then with the, the people that they start with then, it, for, for them, uh, possesses the aptitude to then start training. Yeah. So you pass your PRMC. I think there were about 50 odd people that, that, that went on it and uh, only maybe, I don't know, 15 people that passed it. And then I had three weeks at home and then they phoned up and said, right, we want you to start training a week on Monday. And I was like, oh my, my fuck's God. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, like they said six weeks, but they'd got in touch with me in three. And I was like, oh my God. Is that Lord. part of it as well, do you think? Or? Uh, no, not really. They wanted numbers because okay. Afghan were just starting to kick off. And uh, they were just trying to get people through to get them trained up for Afghan. So I just thought, you know what, I've got to go down at some point. I may as well go down now. So that's and what I did. That in invitation to train doesn't mean you're in. It, it means no, it just it's not complete that training course as well. You have to do the three day selection. Yeah. Or did do. Uh, and then you went down and you, you started training then. After you'd completed that, you then started like week one of training of 32. And then presumably that weeds out a lot more people. Oh yeah, I mean, in first, people leave after day one a training. And they've done the three day previously. And they've done the three days, okay, yeah. 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 And then it's a way over 32 weeks after that. That's it, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, it's, some people pass the PRMC and never go back. Some people pass the PRMC and go down on the train to start training and stay on it and just come home. <laughs> just do the loop. Yeah, yeah. It's got its own train station, yeah. believe it or not, called yeah. Limston Commando. Yeah. And uh, You don't want to get off there by accident, I'm guessing. What a place. Honestly, I, I what a, a place. I had a long weekend at Limston before. Have you been down yeah, there with yeah. have you? It, it might have been... It would be England under... And I can't remember, 15s or something. Yeah, yeah. And we did all the sheep dips. Oh, the endurance God. one, the, what's the big endurance test? Carrying mm. stretches and... Yeah, endurance, mate. They were waking yeah. us up with alarms at 4am, 5am and that. So I've got a little bit of a memory about it, yeah. do you know? And a, 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 like a taste of a crash course, like not even... A, it won't even be anything near it, but... Yeah, when you're doing it, I think you get to that level. I think, I don't know if there's a level in your mind where... You just drop to that level where I'm already that knackered. I'm already that tired. I'm already hurting. I'm already questioning it. I'm just there. You just like a, it's one that I feel like I've got to in rugby games before when you're that knackered and you're just like, I'm just, I'm operating at this level now. I'm back in that place, do you know? It's, yeah, it's like yeah, a, yeah. You're just in a sense in autopilot, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, autopilot. You're just, you're it. just moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like getting through it, getting through it. Um, so, yeah, tell us a bit about, I want to talk a little bit about the sleep deprivation and the hallucinations, but um, also talking a little bit about a night out that you had. <laughs> this is jumping quite a bit ahead, isn't it? But <laughs> you can't it. wait to get to this yeah. point, can <laughs> yeah. We've just skipped like 10 weeks of training here. Uh, we want to go to the sleep deprivation. Uh, yeah, but yeah. No, let's do it in order. Let's no, go in order. no, but first let's 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 get this out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'd had like uh, increments throughout training. You get certain leaf periods. The more junior you are, you get like sometimes three or four hours of leave on a Saturday. And you've got to be back, which normally entails you going out and just sinking pints as many as you can in four hours, and then getting back to camp. So we'd. I think we'd been out, but then we had to be back. But you, you could technically technically go to the the camp pub, which were jollies. So we'd got in there about six of us uh, that kind of formed this little clique, and we we were drinking. And then all of a sudden, we got we, we were like so drunk that we were just like, none of us can be bothered to go to the toilet. So we're just weeing these pint pots. So we're like filling these pints. We've pi all been there. Yeah. So it gets worse, mate. So we're filling the, we're filling, we're filling these pint pots up and uh, at, a, at a rapid rate as well. 
And uh, we're just like, we've got no more pint pots left to, to eat in, so we'll just drink them. So we like, we ended up like drinking like eight or nine pints of, 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 of piss. Recycling. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the girl behind the bar kept saying like, if you don't stop this, uh, I'm going to call it duty sergeant. And we were just like, yeah, whatever, call him. Because we... <laughs> You're not over it. So anyway, she, she spewed up in a bin behind the, behind the bar because of what we were doing. Because like, lads were like wretched and stuff and made her spew up. And she ended up following through with a, a, a threat. And Jake Robb came with a duty sergeant. And like Jake Robb were just like the most stereotypical Royal Marine you could ever envision in terms of a man. Just like square head, mm -hmm. six foot four, like rugby union player, cauliflower ears. Some of the stuff he'd done on operations were just like insane. He'd been blown up. Uh, or somebody had thrown a grenade into a house in Iraq and it had blown him through a couple of plasterboard walls. And when he'd got up, he'd killed three Iraqis with a shovel, a small shovel. He was like that kind of like guy. Anyway, he turned up and like, get outside. And uh, he just said he was going to make his eyes bleed. And that's really what he did. Mm. He just like beasted us beyond belief <laughs> uh, on bottom field and just made us do burpees. And then we had to, I don't think we realised the magnitude of what we'd done, mm. really. Uh, and the next day we were like in front of the Sergeant Major and he said, look, he said, that's the behaviour that we expect from trained Marines. Mm. That would kind of categorise that as being all right, mm. but not when you've just started training. Mm. Like we're only like three or four weeks in, I think. Uh, and we nearly got court-martialed for it. It was really bad. And we had, our, we had uh, restricted privileges, RPs, mm. which is like, you've got to turn up at 10 o'clock at night and lay out all your kit for inspection. It's got to be gleaming. There can't be any water in your water bottle when they turn it up. It, no water can drop out of it. Uh, and we had that for like a week. And it would just got a, got a massive, well, got a fine as well. It was, mm. yeah, it would just... But funny, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Look, 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 yeah, yeah. Just, just, just really funny. You, you miss all the shit bit. Yeah, yeah. that was good. That was worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it won't worth it after. But looking back now, especially on a read book, it's, yeah. it's, it's a funny story. Yeah. I love how I love how the, um, the corporal said to you, "Look, you can only fucking do that when you've you've passed you've passed the course. <laughs> yeah. You can drink piss yeah. when you just get yeah. the hard stuff out of the way. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? that, well, that's that that were it. Yeah, yeah. it were like. I mean, the culture back in the Marines at that time was what well, if you if you messed up, you did something like lads came back off the piss one night and painted the CEO's, CEO's, uh, the CEO's dog pink, and uh, he just his wife were like going absolutely spare, and she was like, oh, he was like lined everybody up, like who's painted the dog, <laughs> uh, and so like some lads came forward because they had to shave all dogs' hair off, and. Uh, they came forward and they were like, right, he said, I'm going to fine you or you're going to get whatever. Or I'm just going to bang you out. Uh, and what do you want? And everybody always chose to get banged out because it was done and final rather than doing weeks and weeks. Of... So like, if you said, like, I'll get banged out, like, right, close the door, close the door, take a whack and that will end of it. It was just a raw, like a really raw kind that of is, yeah. digressing slightly. Full on in it, yeah. Yeah. 
Go on, Chris. I was just going to say, we're, we're going to avoid having a pint with you after this. <laughs> 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 like case. I said, like, them days are done, mate. Yeah. Them days are done. <laughs> um, oh, my God. I was going to jump back a bit and ask you about, because the book is framed around, you actually kept a, a diary at the time. Yeah. Which obviously you didn't realise was going to be No, book. not at all, no. no. But what Was that quite a rare thing? Did yeah. anyone else do it? Or, and why did you decide to keep a diary? It's never been done before. And... Unbelievably, when, when I was I was at Wakefield Westgate Station and uh, just as the train doors were shutting for me to go down and start training, my mum just put a diary in my hand as the door shut. And she just said, like, write, write things down. It'll, it'll help you mentally and uh, I want to know what you've been doing when you come back. And I just kind of felt like, what a mental gift to give somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like, just like... <laughs> yeah. I've got one GCSE at school <laughs> yeah. in like in RE of all things I'm a complete RE. atheist <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yet you've given me this you've like you give me this diary and I'm like whatever took it and like on the way down I was so nervous and it, like just thinking like what am I doing just like this is like what on earth am I doing as trains just speeding towards Commando Training Centre. And uh, I just opened it and uh, I just wrote how I was feeling, that I was anxious but also excited and uh, that I felt like I was on a roller coaster where you're suddenly strapped in and you, you want to get off, but you, you don't. Put your hand up. Uh, and then once it's in motion, you're kind of on your way. And that's, uh, that's what I wrote in it. And then... Every single day then for a year, I was just so compelled to keep it. And that, that's what I did. I mean, I've always had like OCD from being, from probably an eight really. Uh, and that were a massive, massive part of me doing it. It literally is a sliding doors moment then, right? Like, 100%, yeah, 100%. Yeah, like, like, is it short? She's like <laughs> talking to me through a window. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I'm quite skeptical of a lot of self-help books, right? I think, I think there's a saying, that, you know, if self-help books work, there'd be one of them. But what you find is that there's like nuggets in all of them that kind of are just written in different ways. Yeah. But the beauty of what you've got is you didn't intend this to become a, a book that people could get, you know, uh, positive benefits from. But if you were creating the perfect self-help book, you'd almost want someone present to be writing what they were doing at the time as they were doing it. And you've accidentally done that. In a done way. that, yeah. Done that, yeah. I think, I mean, the diary in itself was just like, now just a, a, a totally unbelievable thing that, that that's kind of like been done and over the years I just felt like I had an underlying duty to to get it out there it were such rich information that were just gathering dust on a bookshelf and there'd been a lot of contemporary uh tv documentaries that had come out that I felt had really watered down what it were like uh and sold us all short and I were quite embarrassed by them all and then other other books taking nothing away from them but the uh, the kind of piece the accounts together sometimes from faulty recollections or other, other stories. And I just felt mine just had, had the edge. And then I think doing the psychology just allowed me to forensically deconstruct training and pull out lessons that of psychology that everybody can use to kind of enhance their lives really based on that experience. Each week has a separate lesson as well. Yeah, it? yeah. And they're completely random. It's It's kind of... 
whether it's a positive or negative, it, it's re, I, I think it's rewrote the, the mindset kind of manual really. Because I've, what I've done is I've, like in, in week one, it's compartmentalization, breaking large undertakings down. Then in week two, it's recruit Nero and uh, the construct of masculinity, looking at, like we said, how, what you, who you think is going to pass. Somebody covered in tattoos and cauliflower ears doesn't. Uh, it's the people, unassuming people, that you you write off straight away on appearance. Yeah. And so you're saying out of us three, people were guessing who, who to pass. You'd pass. <laughs> That's on record. <laughs> Cut that out, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, go on. I was I'm, just gonna, I'm like, fucking, go on, you have a go. I, was just, I, I found the writing bit really interesting because... I, I did a bit of CBT. I suffered quite uh, really badly with OCD as well. Yeah. And one yeah. of the things I um, I did is to help one of the CBT techniques was writing stuff down. And it's almost like you just the act of writing it down lightens the load a bit. Yeah. So each I do my top three moments every night. I know you do the same. So in a way, you were kind of doing a form of therapy without realizing it. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And uh, it, it, it were quite remarkable in a way that. It's only recently when I've been asked whether it were a, a kind of an anchor to keep me in training. And I think it probably was subconsciously that I never really thought about because what kept me in training really was the fear of failure because everybody said I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to go home and validate that opinion. I was scared to death of that. Uh, and there were times when I wanted to leave training and, and, and I didn't want to do it anymore not enough to go home and say that I couldn't do it. Because to say that I'd quit, you just, you can never, you can never get away from that, it's scary. And I think the diary, I mean, in a sense, played into that and, and reinforced that fear of failure because who wants to come away with half a diary? It's a, a terrible reminder of, of, of something that you've been unable to do. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think it, it almost certainly, unbeknowingly to me, kept me in. Um, I was just, I was just thinking as you were talking then, Gareth. Um, it was so good reading the book. I've not read all of it yet, but you, you sort of, you see the contrast from day to day. There's like these bits from you where it's saying, there's like even capitals. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I cannot be asked with it with today. Like I've I've not slept for four days, um, a week or whatever, and then the next day it's like, learn how to swim with an assault rifle on my back, um, underwater. That will class. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, and that, and then it's like it's just it's just fl flipping, and and like it just shows like, when we're all going around in life, you know, whether it's in the Marines, whether it's in sport, like. You can write yourself off a lot, can't you, with, with that fear and like judgment beforehand. And it's like, I guess if you, even if you're trying to build new habits, um, you sometimes give yourself too much to do. But if you just get into that habit, like it's like before exercise, every time you, I can't be bothered. So many times when I was before training, like combat, like 45 minutes of smashing into each other, like, I can't, I'm sore, I don't want to do it. But 20 minutes in, you're in it. You know, and it, you, your blood's flowing, you feel better for it. Yeah. And, you know, for, for starting habits, that's what that's what we try and, you know, teach and, and show and bring to our Evolve members is like, you don't have to, you don't have to meditate for 20 minutes. Yeah. Just do it for a minute when you flick your kettle on, do you know? Like, yeah. 
it's it's just getting those like access points to being able to do it and and you know day upon day you're you're showing that you flip your mindset around and you prove yourself wrong quite a lot of times yeah absolutely mate i think the course in itself is is just about redefining your own personal uh expectations and capabilities i think that's what that's what it does and while doing that you're instilling you're instilling self-confidence i think on that point i completely agree mate and i think that uh it's consistency and it's not consistency getting better every day because it's unattainable it's consistency by just turning up and i said that to everybody that that's now going through uh, that's going through training now that, that, that I'm in touch with and trying to mentor through. It's They're obsessed by getting better every day, getting more press-ups, getting more pull-ups, and when they fall below that, they're getting down, and confidence is in the, in the trainers and the, the thinking that they can't pass training. And I just keep saying to them, look, while ever you're not on that train on your way home, you're still on course to get, in, to get into the end, regardless of what condition you're in another night in training and reaching that next day you're on course to something massively massively significant in your life and it's just i think as human beings we always want to see progress every day and building habits is not particularly about getting better every day <clears throat> it's just about reinforcing the desired behavior that, that, that you want to kind of achieve uh, and that kind of ties in with yeah, with and I guess really. e even with the diary talk about progress, did you ever look back over the, the last few days or, you know, halfway through it and just like think, fuck it, I'm actually out there, do you know? Did you look back and go, but then I enjoyed this swimming session, then I enjoyed drinking piss with lads, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm we're going to come back to that story in a minute, I'm going to, I'm going to retell it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... I think I established quite early on that, that I was not going to quit and that I was going to be there to the end and that was quite a powerful kind of realisation but I kind of got to a place where borderline on like desensitisation uh, where I was just able to accept quickly and I think that's just so fundamental, that's the key to, I think it's the, 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 the kind of construct of mental resilience really, the main construct of it is just acceptance, accepting quickly. And it got to a point where they'd say like, right, get all your clothes and throw it down the center, uh, I don't know, console of the, of, the, of, the, of the block. And there were a 10 foot mountain of clothing. And the, if you dwell on that too much, you've got to do it at some point. So there's no point wasting negative energy on not doing it. And I just got to a point where I, whatever, threw it down. Uh, and it was just such a powerful place to be mentally because I took power, they had no longer a power on me because I would do anything and I didn't care because I just thought, I'm still going to be here tomorrow. So you can do whatever you want and I'm, and I'm still going to be here. And once I'd kind of got there at like week 15, I didn't realise until looking back, but I was pretty unstoppable then. Yeah. But yeah, I still thought... Never thought I could do it until I'd literally crossed the bridge on the 30 miler and got my green beret. You just don't think you can. It's it. How it's engineered is that no matter who you are and how much self-confidence you've got, you never know you can do it until you've done it. 
it's just incredible what how, how they've how they've how they've engineered it. Do you think you're just different, whether through nature or nurture, or do you think because there might be people listening who you know maybe um, they've got negative self-talk and they think, oh, that's all right for him, but I'd never be able to do that. Or do you think? I think everyone's more capable than they think they are. But what do you think? Do you think you are just different? No, I, I think I think mental strength and resilience is definitely on a spectrum. In some ways, innate elements of it, and I think that innate kind of mentality and mental strength drives you towards or puts you on a collision course to that experience. You need the experience to then nurture the mindset, but also the self-confidence is a massive factor. And I think you can only start to develop that self-confidence in order to achieve that real pinnacle of mental strength by exposing yourself to that uh, and giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. So many lads that had such an aptitude to, to, to get to the end and be unbelievable soldiers, but they, uh, they made snap decisions on the future in, in sleep deprivation and adversity. And if they would have just had 10 hours sleep or five, they would have fought differently. So many people get in contact with me now and just say, look, it's the biggest regret I've ever done in my life. And now I'm 40 years old and I can't do it. It's... I could take this so many ways. Um, are you wanting to stay on this? Yeah, I've just got one kind Go of on. backup. So what's your advice for someone as the, like their first step for, say they failed repeatedly and their negative self-talk is quite big. What's your advice for making that first step? Have you got any top tips? Or? I, I think... I think enactment, you've just got to, you've got to put your thoughts, your manifestations, your, your, what you want to achieve, you've got to put it into action, even if it's just a really small step. Like you said, Stevie, about building habits, mate, it's, it's exactly that. It's just about building habits. There's a lesson in the book about uh, what we do in the shadows apps predicts what we'll do, how well we'll perform when the lights come on. And it's completely true. It's, it's what we do behind closed doors that, and the behaviours that we do behind closed doors that allows us to go out into, into society and what, and, and be successful and, and, and stuff. So I just think that I have negative self-talk now. Do you know what I mean? I get our nervous coming here. Uh, it's just about some, you've just got to not succumb to that and just act, just do it. it just, but not, I wouldn't say throw yourself into it, although it is an element of it, but just small steps and build habits. Yeah, it's like- But build positive, positive habits. It's like move, move, being able to move through that fear. Um, I, I want to ask you as a psychologist, like looking back on the whole process of that training, like I want to ask you what you'd improve about it what you feel like needs to be there and also the element of fear, like where's, what's the necessary nature of fear in, a, in there? Because like you say, there's fear everywhere, everyone fears something, yeah. but they are literally spoon feeding your fear all the time. Mm. It's a big question, you can go, go in it which way, which way you want, but how necessary is that fear to to test people, you know? Yeah. 
I think in recent years, especially in like an elite sport, as you will have, you will have uh, experienced, mate, it's gone really scientific. Uh, and I almost, it will never go scientific in the, in, in the Marines. It's gone a bit like that in recent years. But I don't think you can develop an elite mindset that has to then go out and do like elite level operations on a scientific basis. You have to put science to one side and take people to really, really dark places. Uh, it has changed in recent years. Uh, they've removed the PRMC because lads were getting uh, a lot of stress fractures from the, the impact at the start of training because the skeletal lower, lower limbs are, they're not hardened enough because they're a gaming generation and internet. Uh, they're not like, I suppose like us when we're jumping out of trees when we're younger and, and, and whatnot. And uh, I think how I would, how I would improve it, it, it tra training was very, very, I think in a lot of ways in terms of tactically, were outdated. It was very much based on a Falklands, kind of Northern Ireland, uh, kind of uh, fabric of, of conducting war, really. And it, we, we really, really were out of touch with the urban environments that we've, that we've since gone to like in, in Iraq and Afghan and stuff. And the Americans were, were all over it. They, were, they, were, they had villages that were as big as Leeds that were mock villages that we went and we were like fighting them and then they'd come and fight us and living in like kind of hostile conditions for like three weeks. Uh, and I think that's, that's how I would kind of, we, we need to, I think sometimes in the UK, especially in the military and stuff, we, we're a bit slow to, 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 to hit the trend, to, to get on trend. And I think that we have in recent years in Marines, gone to like more operating uh, drones and stuff and looking at different skill sets for lads coming in so and, and girls it's op recently opened up to, to women as well which is interesting yeah. but uh, what were your second question I think you've, you've hit a lot of it there what is there is there anything that you'd take away from it take away from training I'd, as hard as it was and it wore like the most horrific experience I've ever been through uh, it really allowed me just to find myself, uh, to find out what my absolute strengths were, but also what my limitations were, what I didn't like. Uh, and, I, and I think it's an incredibly powerful thing, that. Just on that, because there's something I've struggled with, and I've asked it of a few people on this podcast before, but the hardest moments in my life, the things that were most traumatic always now I'm grateful for the lessons I learned in them mm. and uh, you hear it a lot I've mentioned it before but with boxers they'll say oh I don't want my my kids to go through what I went through but then when they have kids they say but they want them to get the resilience that they were forced to go through by having a tough upbringing yeah so I mean I guess you can kind of do that through physical exercise and things like that people challenging themselves but how would you cultivate resilience in um because you know the world's getting a nicer place to live for a lot of us. Yeah. And we mm. don't have as hard lives as perhaps our grandparents did and things like that. And mm. how do you cultivate that resilience and without having to go on like a 
32 week course and drink piss and stuff like how because like you probably found out who you really are more than anyone else here and yeah stevie probably got close as well in, in some i think parts, yeah absolutely there's so much transference between rugby league yeah. and and the marines it's 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 uncanny really it, it, in a lot of ways the camaraderie what you do when you're pissed and stuff is it's same same kind of thing but in terms of cultivating in in uh in society now, I just think it's very difficult, mate. Mm. I really do. I think we're just- Are well, the hard times necessary to get there? Or do you think people can kind of put themselves in situations, whether it's doing Ironmans and things like that, where they can at least get closer to that point? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's stuff like the Ironman and, and other stuff, uh, what Kev did, we, we're running the, 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 that's a really, really, the, there's so much, there's so much out there, but I think in general, I don't think many people ever really find out who they are mm. or what they're capable of doing. And my kind of thing that I've always kind of lived with is, is that I think it's a great tragedy being alive if you never really explore what you're capable of doing, or the, both mentally and physically. And I've always wanted to go to the boundaries of that and see what I'm capable of doing. And, I, I, again, I think mindsets to play. I, th I think that not much, not many people even want to talk about it. Never mind go down and do it, and that's in anything in rugby and in the, in the military or whatever. But I think cultivating it in in general is 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 difficult to impossible, really. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, saying that, I mean we've all just been through through COVID. I think that's been a really tough a tough kind of period for everybody, and I think everybody's gained some some natural resilience from that really. And, and I reflected as well, like when, when I had my son, when I was six, when I was six, <laughs> when, uh, when I had my son six years ago, uh, the sleep deprivation from that, he had colic was like horrendous. Uh, and I just thought that some of that is good for everybody and everybody goes through it. Mm -hmm. So I think that natural process does, does make everybody more resilient and better. So the, I think there is stuff naturally that's in our environment that does make us more resilient and stronger, bereavement, uh, birth and, and, and whatnot. Just thinking about, you know, that sort of finding out who you are, like just thinking about the Marines that stayed on that train, you know, and went back. It's scary that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what, what I mean? What yeah. you found out that you weren't? If, what you, you know, if, you were, or... well, I don't know, it's controversial, isn't it? But it's, they get, I guess they've had a look, haven't they? And they've gone, they've either not wanted to explore it further or they've found out. I guess you could find out that that's, that's not for you, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, I've got a story. Well, I'm so, sure. so it's not for me. Not for me, thank you. I don't have an issue with that. But, yeah, yeah. but see, I, I do. Yeah, I have yeah. a massive issue with that. Like if, if Well, you know where the stop is if you want to... <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I didn't know where the stop is. I think I? the chances of success, especially coming from where you've come from, mate, in terms of like reaching the top in rugby league, uh, I'd, put, I'd put money on your reaching end. I really would. It's got to have a 0.01% after as soon as, as I well, get walking yeah. straight in a straight yeah. line, I'll go have a dick. It'd be interesting to see what the odds of success would be on somebody like yourself mm. with your background mm. compared to somebody that's, that's not, not had that exposure. Yeah. yeah. 
But there's, I mean, touching on that, there's some lads that, that stay in Hunter Company, which is the, the Marines Re 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 Rehabilitation Troop, for like a year, sometimes two years. Uh, they're telling people back home that they've done it and that they're in the Marines and they're not because they're so scared of, of going home and saying that they haven't done it. And I, when I, I were in Afghan uh, doing close protection in 2013 and I went to Camp Phoenix and there were a, a pizza up on the camp and a couple of friends that work in front of a company and I was like, hey, how are you doing, mate? Uh, and there were a lad that were in my troop in training called James, James Thornton Allen and... Uh, he left after week six and I knew he had, but yet he were in Afghan working for a private security company on like mega money. And I'm like, I said to my mate, I said, he, he's, he's, he never passed out of training. And he went, he, I said, I'm telling you now, he never passed out of training. He left and went home, he lived in Canada. And he went, I'll send you, I'll send you a CV. And he sent me a CV and it was like he'd done Royal Marines recce or a sniper, he were all this, but he'd never done any of it. And he'd gone out there and really didn't want to like rumble him do you know what I mean and, and embarrass him but it's really important that you've got good people on the ground that know what they're doing because it yeah and uh, he said it's funny because he, he literally didn't know what he's doing he's <laughs> 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 completely blagged it right? completely blagged it mate yeah yeah can imagine a big bloke is protecting <laughs> <laughs> he's on the ground. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Gareth, let's talk about um, 2014, mate. After you tell me how good it was to actually get the green berry, because yeah. you need to tell us about what that feeling was like. Yeah, mate. Uh, we'd, we'd done the 30 miler. I'd had like an hour sleep before the 30 miler because I was that nervous. Literally got in bed, got out of bed, got all the stuff weighed. Uh, three o'clock in the morning we set off and we 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 set off on it and on first like mile and a half two miles I was just in a world of pain like my legs were like lead I, f I just felt horrendous uh, we got to like six mile uh, sorry 12 mile checkpoint and I was just in the hurt locker and I just thought I'm not going to get out of this at any 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 point soon and we weren't even halfway and it was like such a mental test of just resilience and staying in there, really. And at each checkpoint, you're like, you are, there's a couple of lads that have died doing it. And you, there's gravestones where you, you stop and you, you have a shot of rum, uh, port or whatever, just to give them a bit of a toast. And we got to 26 miles and 20, 24 mile checkpoint. And I thought I had it in the bag. At that point, I thought I've done it, I've cracked it. And I completely underestimated how far 10K is, especially when you're hanging out. Uh, and I started hallucinating and like going to like grab stuff and uh, fell behind back of the lads and pulled myself up a, like a hill, like a, a gradient on a down barbed wire fence and cut all my hands just to get up there and, and, and finish the nightmare. And then all of a sudden, my PTI says, look, you're gonna fail this unless you get your shit together. And I found six, 16 Jaffa cakes in my side pouch in a tube, an old Jaffa cake tube. And uh, you're right, fucking get them down your neck now. So I like literally inhaled all these Jaffa cakes, <laughs> swilled it down with some water. <laughs> Mate, it fucking brought, brought me around. Fucking like it, 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 
It absolutely like the Jaffa cakes, mate. <laughs> Do you bring them everywhere you go? Got there? me my green lid. <laughs> yeah. And then I just, I had these six Jaffa cakes, set off sprinting, caught the lads up just as they were going over the bridge, crossed the bridge and got the green beret. Are you on commission for them or something? Like you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. But you know what? They've just, brought, no, they've just brought uh, like a Jaffa cake donut out, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I saw it sponsored on Instagram and I just put, uh, I put something like, if you know, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm yet to get any sponsorship of them, but yeah. I should do. Yeah, yeah. Man. That, that must have been some feeling though to get it. Yeah, to get over there, mate. It were uh, I was just so busted up, mate. I'd obviously ruptured cruciate ligament. Uh, I tore my right Achilles. One hour sleep, and I, everybody's banged up. Do you know what I mean? There's lads that break the hip or fracture the legs, and they crawl over at finish line. It, it, it's just incredible, and then, then you. I wasn't too bothered about getting the green beret. I more wanted the commando flashes because they said Royal Marine Commando on them, and you could have it on your shirt sleeve. And I just like it's the coolest thing ever, <laughs> uh, and that's that's kind of what I what I were in it for. <laughs> but I was just so relieved. the The overriding emotion was was just one of re relief, really, that I'd that I'd done it. But more so that the nightmare was over, because it had probably been about two years in making, and it were all uncomfortable. Building up to it, training for it, going down for PRMC, starting training, and that year just felt like, sorry, that two years just felt like my entire life, and I was just so happy for it just to be over, and there it was, kind of in the bag. Mate, what, do daily worries and stuff that people get like stressed about now, like oh, I miss my bus and things like that, are they do they always seem trivial to you now? Does that does that what you go through there and then obviously after what you've been through since and stuff as well? Do, do you have like a just does it just give you a stoic perspective on what really matters and what doesn't? Yeah, I think so, mate. I, uh, yeah, I, I think in a sense, yeah, it, it's kind of all all that I've ever known is or I feel like I've ever known is that. Uh, and in a sense, it, it kind of, I think going out to Afghan, I 100% thought I'd get killed in Afghan. Uh, three, of, three of my mates, the line is all up uh, after uh, final X, 11 of us originals that had, that had got to the end and just said, statistically, of how many, sorry, was that from the beginning? 51. So 51 down to 11. 11 at the end, yeah. Cool. And they just said that, uh, three of your ear will get killed in first year of leaving training. And we were just like, is this mind games or what? And it happened. It came true. It what? It, 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 that's what happened. Uh, so I absolutely thought, Afghan's got my number. Like, we're, gonna, we're all dropping like flies in Afghan. Uh, and I never went in Marines. And it, again, how I kind of rationalised it were, were quite negative that I'd bottled it and I couldn't live with that. So I just thought I need to kind of right this wrong and, and put it right, but I'm going to live with regret and and be not be in a good place. So I just thought... I'm Why did you not go then? Presumably it wasn't, was it just out of your hands? I or? wanted to go, but yeah, it yeah. was just how the drafts worked. I just went to different places and just missed it. Uh, and then I applied to go on, on hostile close protection. 
Uh, and I, after three years, I got Iraq and Afghan. And Afghan were like by far the most hostile place. And I chose Afghan because I had to put it right in my mind. But that build up and that stress between going were just absolutely horrific. I, I, I absolutely thought that I was going to die, but I had to go because if not, I couldn't live with myself. So I ended up having like intrusive thoughts and where I couldn't control my thoughts. And I'd like, I'm walking around New Miller Dam in Wakefield and I looked at water and then I had this like thought rushing to me head that if I fell in, I'd drowned. And it was just like, it just got really, really tense. And then when I left, I had hypersensitivity. So I got on tube in London and I'd see somebody that represented somebody from the Middle East in terms of dress and, and beard and look. And I'd, I'd get off tube sweating and just think that he was going to blow himself up. And he, he wasn't. Do you know what I mean? I was just in a, in a bit of a bad place, but I, I was just mentally burnt out from it, from it all. It just burnt me out. Yeah, I was going to say, because a lot of what the book is, is how the, the skills you learn, we can all transfer into our life. Yeah. But unfortunately, the stats are there to show not everyone who serves does successfully transfer the, the skills that they can learn into life and PTSD and even high suicide rates yeah, yeah, yeah. are a thing. So... Yeah. You've kind of touched in it there, but I, I, you know, some people might think, oh, well, they've been through way worse. How can civilian life be so tough? But could you talk a bit about why the transition is so hard for people? Yeah. I think one of the, one of the, the biggest hurdles that people have got leaving the Marines is, 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 a, is a generalised stereotype of, of, of what a serviceman is uh, or a servicewoman. And that is just... Uh, an overarching generalization that people are, are not very intelligent going military because look at the job that they go out and do. Uh, who, who would possibly want to go to war and do that? Uh, and, 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 and I suppose it does uh, disproportionately attract people from working class backgrounds. Uh, and I think all these provide barriers for people when they come back in. When you, when you leave, I mean, I left and I thought, I'm just going to get straight into whatever I want to do because I've got Royal Marine Commando on my CV, but A, nobody knows really what it is, uh, and B, nobody really cares. Uh, and they don't think you've got them transferable skills, so I just think it makes it really, really tough. A lot of people come from broken, broken homes and backgrounds as well, uh, and they stay in the military because it provides, in a sense, an artificial family unit, and they're reluctant to leave, but when they have to leave, and the military like kind of slams the door on them. I think they really struggle with reintegrating back into, into society. There's another stereotype, another problem as well is, is that when you go in the, in the military, you kind of, I suppose in a sense, brainwashed to believe that all civilians are not up to your standard or they're stupid. And I think people come out with a sense of entitlement that they're better than other people. And it's completely, it's false and it's, it's really dangerous. And I think that's some of the barriers that people have when they're, when they're trying to leave, really. It's interesting, you said you had the like, hypersensitivity. So it's almost like they make you one thing and change your, your, your mind and then they don't do anything to change you back or to, to try and rewire some of that stuff. So people are probably completely wired in a way which won't react well with just going out in the world normal and I guess some of the ways of coping with that probably are drink, drugs, things which numb it or... 100%, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, 
in a sense, Afghan really, really opened Pandora's box on, on PTSD. It's always been enduring from, from every conflict, but men being men have never spoke about it. Uh, because it's been seen as weakness, massive, massive stigma attached to it, obviously, which is why we're here. Uh, and I think that yeah, there's just there's just not the right there's not the right care out there. And, and another real real reason is is that nobody really wants to come forward uh, and say that they're struggling, especially being in military, because it kind of it really conflicts with the identity that you've got of being this this really tough tough male. And it's a really strange one from a psychological psychological perspective that we we prioritise a self concept over how we're actually feeling and, and, how, and how we feel, I think it's... I do get that though, like you, you're made or you're tested to literally just go through everything, aren't you? Like, and that's what you've passed, you've got your Green Beret with, that's how you've, you've gone out um, and been drafted. Like, that's the, that's the track that you're living on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like a track of, uh, a bit like a freight train, really, where you just, Somebody's put it on, on, on full speed and then jumped off. Yeah. And it, at some point it's going to start grinding on tracks and it's going to start falling apart because it's going to run out of oil. And that's definitely what I think what I experienced. It's almost like what I wanted to do really conflicted with my body composition and my mind. Like my mind, I did feel like my mind wasn't strong enough to do the things that I was pushing it to do. And I completely neglected how I was feeling. Uh, and I still pay for that to, to this day, really, in terms of OCD and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah. You, like you're saying with OCD and, you know, I think with Chris, like, it's a particular mindset in it and it, and it offers um, so much in terms of who you are. Do you know what I mean? But then yeah. there's the other side to it that, yeah. That I think, and, and 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 what you can achieve, it, it's. Do you think it can be a strength as well, or, or at least the the patterns? I think it's an it's it's an unbelievable kind of tool yeah. to achieve success and get what you want, because what I, I think what underlies it all is an ability not to quit yeah. and to get what you want. I think the fallout of that is is that if that mindset kind of gets redirected onto other things, yeah. or you get thrown off course. If that then goes into negative stuff, you're just in a world of pain. And it's really funny because like last night, I'd, I watched uh, Sam Burgess, an interview on SAS Who Dares Wins. And the first time I'd known that he was, I, I don't know him yeah. at all, but the first time that I knew that he was kind of struggling and I thought, bloody hell, where he is now is where I was when I left, when I was a young lad and for him to be going through that at his age, we all the other responsibilities must be in a terrible place, do you know what I mean? And it's it's really true. If if it's if it's positive, it's it's gonna be brilliant. But if it's negative, it's it's gonna be So it's like the direction and support around yeah. that energy in it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. To That's keep it. it on a good track. Yeah. Um Yeah. We could talk about that for days, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah, we could. Should we go into the quick fire 10 and then we can do some questions? Or well, or have you got a few more? 
<laughs> okay, I've so. got loads. I've got loads, but um, no, go for it, man. Tell us, tell us a little bit about Afghan and and what that was like for you. Yeah, so we flew into to Afghan from Dubai because uh, it was private private security, and we uh, we went to this like awful terminal in Dubai, which is uh, a connecting like domestic terminal for, for Middle East and. Nothing like that you would have experienced if you'd been in Dubai at all. It was that were hostile in itself, awful. We got on this Safi flight over, and it, within like an hour and a half, you were flying over Afghanistan, and it it's just the most hostile place I've ever been in my life. Uh, you're at altitude, so straight away you can you're struggling to breathe when you land, and everybody's just looking at you like they want to kill you, and you. That just the environment, it's like in, in summer it's baking hot and your boots are sticking to the floor and in winter it's freezing cold and it's, you know like when you're watching Aliens, the film, yeah. and they're going, on, they're, they're going to this other planet and they land and yeah. you know shit's about to go down and it's going to start getting a bit tasty. It's just like that. It's like it's, it attacks your senses in, in every way and we were living on a, on a illegal compound that were like this illegal compound that were just at the side of a Afghan uh, police headquarters. You never knew if if any of them were Taliban or or or, or, or insurgents that were double acting for police. But we lived in shipping containers that were like infested by rats, mice, and we lived on bunk beds. And uh, I we bought we we bought weapons off Taliban. Believe it or not, uh, for a, for a couple of hundred dollars, and they came in to the compound on in in a, in a yellow taxi, and they lifted the boot up, and there were all these weapons and ammunition, and we we got them, and I had a, a PKM, like a belt-fed weapon that were, I kept inside of my bed, my little bunk bed on a night, with four hundred rounds just in case somebody came in, just to literally turn over and just pull the trigger, and it would just an unbelievable way of living really. I had like hand grenades under my pillars uh, so that I could just put my hand under my pillar and just pull, pin out and throw it and just mental, mental way of living. We'd, 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 we were protecting uh, American civilian engineers that were training the Afghan National Army how to use radios and communicate better. And one of the briefs that I'd give them which again, it just shows where I was mentally really is they'd get in the car and we'd like say, I'd like to say, look, this is, I'm Gareth. If, if I get killed on this journey now, this is an AK-47. This is where you take the magazine out. I've got uh, more magazines in my chest rig. Safety catches here. Uh, it's got a, a, a range of 400 meters. And I was giving that brief every time I went out and Missed an explosion by, a massive explosion by uh, by 10 seconds. I'd literally, I'd got in country and I'd found a lump in me, in my testicle. So like, as soon as I'd got there and I thought, I can't be in here for, a, for, for more weeks now with this because uh, it's just gonna ruin me, ruin me, 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 me mindset. So we got in a soft skin vehicle, which is not armored and, and got dressed up as Afghans and we, we were going to go down downtown Kabul to get it ultra scanned. And just as we got to the main gates, 
were just like this and this massive mushroom cloud went up in air and then we could literally see shockwave come through wall compound and it were like coming towards us and just like went straight through us and we'd only missed it because one of the lads had forgot his ID so we'd stopped as he ran back to get his ID the explosion went up had he had his ID or he'd not not remembered we would have been on Jalabad Road and probably been killed and it left a massive you know on Terminator 2 when he Arnold arrives and is naked in that crater. Uh, that's what it was like. And every time he drove over it, it was boom, boom, boom. It was just, yeah. And then, just a crazy year, mate. Just a crazy year. We had weapons in glove box. We weren't allowed weapons in airport. And somebody opened door and just said, pulled glove box down, all these pistols fell out grabbed it and he's like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? And he fired it. And it went in between cracking my leg in car uh, through me. It just, just a crazy year. Um, we could stay on that. We could linger on that, mate, for a long time. Um, got to do the piracy story. Yeah, yeah, we've got to go into the, um, the piracy. Not not, yeah. not not like you blew away selling DVDs out of back of the Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, actually being out there. The real the, deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Off the coast of Somalia. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing maritime for for quite some time and as Marines, you naturally fell into it because we were perfectly kind of served to, to do it. And piracy were massive in 2011, 2012. And ships were getting hijacked every day by pirates off coast of Somalia and then taken to Somalia for ransom. Uh, so I got on a boat in Malta uh, and I went, we went, I went through the Suez Canal on, on, the, on the boat and picked another three lads up in Suez and we went down the Red Sea. So, just, so it's you and three, so there's four of you. Four like, of us. Security for the yeah, whole yeah, yeah. There were four of us and- uh, And you're in charge. And our TL. Yeah, yeah. Team leader, yeah. And, uh, the boat were like doing eight knots, like less than eight miles an hour. And it was, it had a five meter freeboard. So it were like, step from here onto that table or just above, which were like terrible, terrible dynamics for a, for a, for an approach or an attack. And I just had this feeling that we were going to get bumped, like attacked. And I was just like, so, so scared and worried about it. I just hated the thought that we were going to go past Somalia on this boat. Massive thing, like 300 meters long, tanker that will weigh down with we, we iron ore. And I had me dinner one night and one of the lads radioed and just said like, gas, gas, you need to get up to the bridge now. Uh, there's boats coming in. So I like ran up 15 flights of stairs, belly full of food. And when I got there, I was like completely like knackered. And I looked through binoculars and you could see these speedboats coming in like cutting us off from port side and i just knew straight away what what, what it were about and i was like like hyperventilating and like oh God. you know like that fight or flight you know like if you've ever been out in a club and somebody st starts or you've you don't want to fight it was like that i wanted to run away and i more started coming in from port and starboard side and i just i just thought we had to surrender i just thought the only way we're gonna reserve any kind of percentage of life that we've got here is to surrender but it were really irrational kind of way of thinking because i knew that it was 
a position where we, we, we couldn't we couldn't negotiate an an, an unnegotiable negotiable situation and I was I'd, it was the only point I think in my life where I thought I'm gonna die and I just didn't want to die. And having that realisation that I was gonna die for a number of minutes were just like absolutely horrific and as they came in there were a young lad that were laid across the boat like he were uh, on a deck chair on holiday, like it was just a, another another thing. And we fired warning shots into water when they got within 300 meters, because that were our kind of rules of escalation and engagement. And this guy didn't even flinch. I was looking through binoculars. This young lad, he didn't even move. And then they we just we just started engage. Well, they started engaging. We started engaging. And over like 35 minutes, we fought off like 50, 60 pirates, four of us. And it would, it would, I mean, they were trying to get on at all different angles and stuff and uh, trying to get on. It would just, it was really weird. I mean, halfway through it, although I couldn't see it, I felt like winning the, winning the arm wrestle. You know, like at rugby, if you're in a really like, I suppose if you're in a grand final, not that no, but it's tight, four, four, four points in it. But you feel like you're starting to mm, wear them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like that. I thought we were winning. And as soon as I thought that we were winning the firefight, and I know we were going to live, it was just the m most amazing feeling I've ever had in my life. It was just like, I just thought, I'm not going to die. I'm, I'm, we're going to be all right. Uh, and I actually, halfway through, like, met lads a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right? <laughs> we're talking, when you say firefight, we're talking like gunfires going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long, right? how and you thought, yeah. like, does anyone fancy? So there's, thought, there's someone out on deck. I thought the team his... needed refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Captain, isn't he? You've got to do it. Yeah, do yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So, so there's someone out on deck. Is he, is he still sunbathing, this lad? Or is he, is he up and is he about? Is he getting food in? And... No, no. I mean, we, we, we started putting rounds into the boat. Uh, it was just just carnage. Do you know what I mean? There were like people laid out in boat and boats were bobbing about and they just ended up falling away. Do you know what I mean? We The attack was so significant for them that the Somali militia put 10 grand bounties on his heads for his capture. Uh, and we were on the front of the whatever Somali Gazette that we were wanted in Somalia. But were they trying to... Uh, alleged it was something that it wasn't. Uh, yeah, they said that we'd we'd killed a load of uh, fishermen, but like, literally they 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 had AK-47s that rolling up in air and RPGs, and uh, yeah, just unbelievable. The the funny thing is, like that night, the, the all all the crew were Burmese, and the captain were like this small Burmese guy. You know, like right tonight we have a party. We have a party tonight for you guys and. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the guys got he all the- He didn't know the piss story then, I'm telling you. Oh, mate, mate. <laughs> like, he said, we put massive buffy on and we have party, we, you weren't allowed to drink. He went, we get the drinks out and got all the drinks out. And I had to like, write loads of reports next day, legal reports for this incident. So I had not been a leader or anything. I was like, I'm gonna get my head down, I was fucked. But the lads went and went to this party and uh, the next day, like, really sheepish and I'm like what's, what's going on what's going on they went 
oh yeah, we're called Naked Bar. And they, like they had Naked Bar and they had Captain and Crow walking around ship naked, pissed off. Fucking hell. Yeah. We need to do another um, episode, I think. Just yeah. all the uh, yeah. all the pies. Yeah, it was just it was just absolutely superb, mate. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. When I started Mentality five years ago, I was committed to creating a hub that would offer the knowledge and experiences to allow all of us to go beyond the stigma that cripples many men into a life lacking fulfillment. It would be a lie to say that I knew the impact mentality would be having on people's lives, but we are. And it blows me away when someone gets in touch to share with us how we've helped them. So today's podcast sponsor is Mentality Counselling. And I want to share with you a testimony from a guy who went from listening to this exact pod to making the important step to start counselling. Just wait until you hear what he has to say about his experience. If you are someone who this resonates with and you are ready to get the help that you deserve, head to our website right now and get in touch with John. I found it almost impossible to share my feelings and emotions with others. This was evident in our first few sessions. John was patient with me, provided support and guidance, but also gave me the necessary push when I needed it. Our sessions have changed my life. I now use my feelings and emotions to my advantage rather than letting them control my life. John has given me the tools to continue to improve outside of our session and I am so much happier now. I, just before, uh, we got, we're flipping, smashing time, aren't we? Um, but we've got people join us. That moment when you thought you were gonna die, what what was that like? Just awful, mate. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'd, I'd never experienced that before, and mentally it was such an uncomfortable place to be. Uh, I think it like had a a real knock on effect. I think that moment kind of, in a sense, switched my OCD negative, because prior to that. It was always really positive when I was playing rugby. Uh, and like I've put in the book, I'd, I'd practice and I'd, the OCD were at the perfection end of it, where I'd, I'd fire like 10 lateral passes out to a lamppost. And if I'd got nine and, and didn't get 10, I'd have to start again. And I wouldn't go in the house until I'd done right and left and, and hit the 10. And it were always a really positive kind of ally. And after that, it was almost like if I didn't turn the, the cooker the cooker hobs off or I didn't check them, the house would blow up. If I didn't turn the taps off, everything had it had flooded and wreck everything and cost a load of money. And it's just started getting negative and uncontrollable. And I think it kind of it stemmed from that, although it wasn't I wasn't able to kind of naturally ID it has been a, as a result of that, but yeah, it was just awful, awful, a place that I'd, that I'd kind of never want to go back to really. And I think that and, and, and various other things, were, especially when, when, when we had his little lad, I'd, I just kind of thought, I'm going to knock this on head now, regardless of how much I love it. Uh, I can't do it because I'm a little boy. It's just not worth it. 
Can I ask just one more for the road? Go for it, mate. <laughs> it's, it's quite a difficult question to ask, and I'm sure it's almost like the, the, the egoic question people in the pub might ask you. But, And I know you've done research on what leads people to getting involved in um, you know, armed organisations and conflicts and stuff. But when you're involved in incidents where people do lose their lives, yeah. psychologically, because I can imagine that might play into PTSD for people and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What is that like? As, from an individual yeah. kind of element. Yeah, yeah. The exposure to it. I, I, it it's, it's a strange one because I don't think that you, you don't know how you're going to react is the answer. Very much like the fight or flight thing, you just don't know. It's how you wake up out of bed that morning. And there were the, the, there's like lads in the Marines that I don't personally know, but you were, you were these stories of like really, really like mentally tough and unbelievable soldiers that were like snipers in Marines and they're, they're renowned in the Marines, do you know what I mean? You, you know the name. And they went to Afghan and uh, all of a sudden they come back and the one lad like riding an imaginary bike round camp and it sounds funny and, and stuff like that, but he were like, he'd prop this bike up against wall, go in, have his dinner, come back out and get on this fucking imaginary bike and like ride it round camp because his head had gone. And then he will set his hair on fire in his room. And I think it just, it, it kind of, it emerges in all different ways. And I don't think you, you certainly don't know how, you, how you're ever going to react to it individually. It's a, it's a, it's a response that is com completely uncontrollable. Uh, but I mean, for me, really, I, I, like Tom Curry, who's, who's one of the three that the book's dedicated to, he, uh, he was like my best mate in training. And although that I only knew him for a year, I just like think about him every day. Uh, and there's not really a day that goes past that I don't. And like when I phoned his mum and dad up and said, like, I only had an hour towards the back end of publishing this book where I, I, I had an hour, it got down to an hour where I had to contact some of the family members and just say, look, yeah, or they all had to be taken out, the dedication would have been, and I was really devastated about it. And I managed to get in touch and with Tom and Ben Watley, Ben Watley were like the, one of the youngest to ever do it. He, he joined at 16. Uh, an unbelievably completed training as an original with us at 17. Uh, just an unbelievably strong young lad. And he got killed at, in Afghan. Uh, eight, I think he was 18 and 19 years old. And I phoned his mum up and just said, look, uh, I've wrote this book and I've dedicated it to Ben. And I was like really welling up, do you know what I mean? I, I didn't know what to say to him and like they didn't know what to say to me and his dad just said like what's it all about like, what what is in why he died do you know what I mean like what what were it all about and yeah just I suppose incredibly powerful really Imp powerful moment but yeah to answer your question mate I just it's a tough one I, I think in a lot of ways you are uh not desensitised to it, but it's a part of the job. It is a part of the job. Uh, it's an uncomfortable reality of what you want to do. I've always said it's like, it's the ultimate adventure is going to war where you're living a life unrestricted. 
Uh, you're doing things because they have to be done to preserve life. Uh, there's no nonsense of office rules and stuff. And you're doing stuff because it has to be done. That way it's life and death, yeah. And it's just the most, in a sense, exhilarating and, and most powerful experience that I think any young man or woman can have. And the downside of it is, is that you can get killed doing it or seriously injured. And that's the, I suppose that's the kicker really. Well, the, that whole podcast, mate, has been absolutely epic. Mm. Um, Thank you so much, man. Yeah, no it's problem, been absolutely mate. class. Are we gonna, Pleasure. We are going to jump to some questions. I know we've got some quick fire, we'll but I reckon we'll do end. those we'll after. Questions first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so put them on Zoom so if, you've, if you've got them in the chat. Any we'll Zoomers, throw in some questions uh, into the chat box if you've got any. And for the audience right now, who's got a question? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple. Um, so I spoke to ex-tornado pilots and current typhoon pilots about, obviously their job involves a particular thing that without making it ping and fluffy is taking a life. Yeah. And they've talked to me about how they've compartmentalised that and how they deal with it. How was it for you dealing with that? Because it is part of your job or was part of your job, but it's probably a bit more personal than someone X amount of miles up in the air and, and pulling a trigger. How do you deal with that bit mentally? Yeah, it, mate, it's a great question. And uh, I think I can answer it from two perspectives, really. Like the, the young 20 year old me, were a def really different person to who I am now. Uh, somebody that lacked remorse, not lacked remorse, but just had no uh, empathy, uh, which made it, I suppose, the, the thought of going to war and, and doing what you have to do relatively easy. Uh, I didn't really mind the thought of doing some of the things that I potentially had to do. Uh, and I think one of the key things is, 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 is like the pirate attack. It's like, I've never abused, I think, the, the power of pulling the trigger. And I think a lot of people can, you can do that. You really can. And because I've never abused it from my perspective, it just makes it really easy to, to kind of get on with it and, and, and live with it. Had we had not done that in Somalia, we would have been dead, 100%. Everybody would have been. Uh, and in that sense, it's just a case of, it's, it's their morals. I think where I am now in terms of uh, maturity and, and understanding, just a completely different person. Uh, I couldn't do it now. Uh, and I wouldn't want to do it. It's almost like, uh, you know, Shawshank Redemption when Red's talking to Andy Dufresne and he says, look, uh, I'd like to go back and shake that lad or put my arms around him. That's what I'd want to do to my 20 year old self and just say, look, it's going to be all right. Just, just chill out. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and yeah, that's kind of how I, I how I've kind of dealt with it really is just knowing that, especially in Somalia on that, on that kind of gig, it was just like, there were no other option but to, to pull the trigger on that one. Uh, and that, I think that's, that's really key to how you, how you deal with it after. Yeah, cheers for that. So, and the other one was um, obviously currently serving, uh, knowing what we've got in place through Padres, through SAFA and DCMH. 
But from your experience, what do you think the military could do different or add in there? Because you still there's still uh, instances of lads committing suicide or having to go to DCMH and struggling. What do you think could could be changed or what could be done to help a bit more? I suppose it's different from your perspective as yeah. infantry frontline compared to fixing planes and whatever else we do in the RAF. But what could do you think could be done? I think there's a completely fundamental mental health structure that needs to be implemented. And it's not just in the military, it's in society. Cost is a massive barrier to it, uh, but also understanding as well. I think that uh, the problem with PTSD is it's so complex and it intertwines with issues that people have had uh, before joining. Some people have come from horrendous backgrounds. Uh, David Goggins, for example, got absolutely beaten to a pulp as a kid. And I think when that kind of feeds into some elements of PTSD, you end up with a, the saying psychology, especially mental health and rehabilitation, that it's like a uh, tightly woven ball of knots and a mess. And trying to unpick that and get people back backfiring effectively is tough. And, I think the nature of PTSD is, is so complex that it, it's a massive, massive undertaking. It's not impossible in terms of getting people feeling better, but we need more money invested into it. And sadly, mental health is, is just one of them things that some people think it's a load of bollocks uh, and that you should just man up uh, and other people. And as a result of that and the stigma attached to it, there's a reluctance to put money into it. And I think the, the money that an investment that it would need to, to do a really good job on it, people are just not willing to, to put that in. No worries, mate. Pleasure. So we've got Adam Bullock here. <laughs> Aside from the Jaffa Cake moment, what's the biggest lesson you've inadvertently learned and how has it changed your mindset and behaviour since that moment? I think... Uh, Training, cheers Adam, uh, I think training definitely uh, just allows you to see what you're capable of doing. Uh, it's a, in a sense a rite of passage that allows you to find you and you, you, you establishes your identity and coming off the back of that, which is uh, recognises the longest and hardest military training corps basic in the, in the world. You then, you, not that you think you can do everything and, and succeed, but you back yourself to do it. And I think it's just a really powerful place to be mentally, is that like with psych forensic psychology, when I threw myself into that, obviously I had no GCSEs, no really, really, I had to go to a reading unit at school where they teach me how to read the and and all stuff, do you know what I mean? It was, White Bush used to turn up, it was literally so embarrassing, it was unbelievable. Uh, but it just allowed me to think, you know what? I'm gonna have a bash at that. And we'll see how we get on. And as soon, and again, it just reinforced the fact that I won't quit and that I'd see it through and I loved it. And I think it, that's what, that's what, that was the main lesson, is learning that I'm willing to back myself. I back myself, I trust myself, uh, and that's that's what I got from it. Yeah. 
That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Big one. Um, Harvey, do you want to have a go? Obviously, we're here with men uh, mentality. Um, and we've all got some input regarding mental health, and that's why we're all here. When was it in your career when you kind of realised that I'm not just doing what I'm being told, I'm actually here because of, I'm wanting to be here, but when was it that you realised, like, shit, I need to start putting my mental health above what they're telling me as well, like, get it on a par? Like, did, did was there a, a turning point? Was there an incident that ever made you think, actually, like, the world's changing, people's mindsets are changing, I need to change with it as well? Yeah, Afghan, mate, yeah. Just the whole, the whole experience? As as yeah, the whole... The old kind of experience of Afghan, really, I just, I identified then that I was becoming mentally unsuitable to, to operate in that environment. Uh, there were certain elements where lads were really comfortable and I wasn't. I was internally in a shit state, mentally. And I just thought, unless I go back and address my mental health, uh, I'm not going to be in a good place. Do you know what I mean? And I thought I've got to come back and take some downtime and just uh, and and just put my hand up and just say, look, I'm struggling here. Uh, and that's what I did. I, I engaged in in CBT. But again, this ties into what we've just discussed. I, didn't, I never bought into it because the guy that was talking to me, I just knew he didn't understand what I, what we're talking about. Uh, and what I've learned in psychology is is that the the, the the biggest chance of success in, in terms of one-on-one -on -one therapy is your connection with your therapist. And I didn't have that. I never bought into it. And as a result, I never really, I don't think, I'm not right now, do you know what I mean? But I, you just get on, don't you? You just, you just wake up and see how you, how you feel and you, you kind of crack on and, and see how you are. But yeah, definitely Afghanistan, mate. I, 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 I was no longer able to put it in a cupboard and just move forward. I had to, I had to open the cupboard and let it all crash out and address it. I've got a bit of a fun one as well. Bit, bit yeah, go on, do it, mate. It's getting a bit heavy, isn't it? Yeah, do it, mate. Do it, <laughs> do it. Gosh. Uh, I work in film and TV. You've mentioned a few films, so you're obviously a bit of a film fan. What would you say is the most accurate film regarding what you do? I watched Zero, Zero Dark Thirty the other day for the first time. It's a bit of a heavy slog, I've got to, I'm not going to lie, but... <laughs> yeah, that, you know what, it's a great, it's a great question, that, mate. Zero Dark Thirty is definitely up there, mate, 100%. Have you seen Sicario? I have, yeah. Sicario 1 and 2, I think, is the most accurate representation oh, really? of... Of, uh, of it. Of, of not doing that particular job, because that's obviously elite-level CIA op operators, but how they hold the weapons, what they do, how they talk, how they engage in contact and stuff. It's such a delight to watch, a joy to watch. Yeah. And also, uh, although the bullet penetration is slightly inaccurate, but uh, Lone Survivor. All oh, right, yeah. That's, a, that's another good one. I think they've really started, they've gone away from the likes of Rambo and Predator. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Where you're holding like this massive belt-fed weapon up and just never-ending rounds coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But uh, but yeah, def- I think for me watching it, recent ones is Sicario. I think uh, I watched that and I'm just like, whoever's amazing. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. I'll give it a rewatch. Thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, mate. Let's just go with Jill on here on Zoom and then we'll come over to Johnny. Um, what was the turning point that led you to train in psychology and when did you train? Did you Do you specialise in armed forces slash marines? Yeah, no, I... Uh, again, I, I got to... Uh, is it Jill, is it? Yeah. Hi, Jill, thank you. I, I got to a place where I just wanted to... Uh, to understand my younger self and why I was so keen to experience war and, and hurt other people. Do you know what I mean? I want I just war. The person that I become after leaving Leeds were just awful. Do you know what I mean? I used to get on a bus and just go out into, into Wakefield or Leeds and just with a sole intention of fighting. And I didn't like that person. And also why I was so keen and eager to to go to Iraq and Afghanistan, I was like, who is that? What's it all about? And I thought I'm gonna do forensic psychology to try and understand myself. Uh, and that's 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 kind of where I went with it. And I'd, I absolutely just were completely fascinated and, and, and really, really loved it. Uh, and just thought it's 100% one of the best things I've ever done, is that. And, uh, but then it kind of trans, it transpired then and I, I'd, still got kind of an underlying urge to look at uh, social isolation and radicalization, how being on the fringes of society and being isolated from uh, from people turns some people to radicalization, lone wolf attacking and trying to look at countering that. I've got quite a, quite an interest in that, but also Again, looking at climate attitudes as well, and how we can nudge mass people to participate in, in different behaviours. So yeah, it completely changed. I, I haven't really... What I did find on, on, on forensic psychology is, is that I didn't want to go into clinical psychology and uh, rehabilitate people or, or, or provide therapy. Not that... Uh, it's needed. It's just something that I'm just not interested in. And I think you've got to go with your strengths. I didn't, I didn't really, I found it a bit too complex and a bit too, uh, I just didn't enjoy that, that module of, of, of psychology really. Uh, and also the forensic side of working in prisons, I didn't really enjoy, enjoy that either. So no, I, I kind of look at a military element of it, of, of, of radicalization and de-radicalization, but also climate attitudes. Like it, like it. Obviously, um, it's all started with the, the diary right at the very beginning. Um, it's gone into the book. Um, do you think that there are, there are moments that, because the world's so fast these days, that moments that people just, they miss that moment of just taking the time to realize that they have actually got what they need? Um, to to survive or succeed in whatever they want to do, but um, they, either they don't think it's all right to take that moment, or they're just not able to do it. And um, I know you said um, you didn't want to go into the um, the kind of rehabilitating, but what what do you think are the, some of the simple things that somebody could do? If, yeah. 
if like they've missed those moments. And a lot I've I've heard it said it's never too late to start, and I guess that's where the habit thing comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. That, doing that small thing each day. Sure. What do you think that that's the one thing people could do? Mate, I I absolutely do. I think one of the things, and and again, it this is a socially constructed negative around failure, uh, where people are scared to fail, and they're scared to fail predominantly because of external validation or external perception of being a failure. And as a result, people stay in the comfort zone. And I think being in your comfort zone, you're never gonna, because without saying you're never gonna truly realize your potential. Uh, and while, while ever you're in your comfort zone, the people that are out are excelling and they're leaving you behind. Before you know it, there's a massive void in terms of where you need to get, be in a particular span of your life. And I just think that when you step out of your comfort zone, you absolutely immediately hit adversity. Uh, but through perseverance and understanding that failure is the underrated best friend of success, uh, you, can, you, can, you can go on and excel at anything you want to do, but it's, you've got to be prepared to come out of your comfort zone. And that, I think that's where enactment comes in really. You've just got to just do it. Just physically manifest it from your, from your mind. And, and that involves leaving your comfort zone. But the, what you can go on and achieve and, and attain when out your comfort zone, as long as you persevere. I failed so many times in training at various stages uh, and had so many like, so much self-doubt that I was gonna do it. But I just stuck, stuck at it and it's all about just persevering and just turning up. Uh, and I think it's just like we've talked about, Steve, it's just basic, uh, basic behaviors, small little positive things like just setting an alarm and getting up, uh, going and doing a class before work, meal prep, just all stuff that's gonna give you an edge. The problem I think that many people have got psychologically is, is that nobody's willing to invest the effort into the mundane. They want quick, we all human beings want quick results. You wanna earn quick money. Uh, nobody wants to go the hard route to, to get the riches at the end. And I think that's a massive problem. And that's one of the reasons why we struggle to, to, to find what we wanna do and find fulfillment. Thank you, I appreciate that. No problem, mate. Just, just off the back of that, do you have, so what positive habits do you have like now, like right now, like particularly like yeah. morning routine or something? So I, uh, I never put on, put off responsibilities to the following day. Obviously sometimes I fall short of that. Uh, I'm by no means the perfect product. Uh, far, like far, far from it. And I've, I've 100% not re reached fulfillment, but I, uh, I just try and replicate with an element of consistency, the same things that I want to do day in, day out. Going to the gym is a massive one for me and my mental health. Getting outside and going for a, for a walk or doing positive stuff. Uh, don't really drink a lot of alcohol anymore. Uh, it has so much negative consequences for me. By no means violent or anything like that, or I don't turn into a nasty person, but it impinges on me what I want to do the following day. Can't sleep properly, I want to eat rubbish and... Uh, but I, 
yeah, I just just try and live a really positive lifestyle and just really just try and be a good person. And uh, and like going to the gym and just getting involved in business, talking to, to all you guys is just is is is, is where it's at. Like cool. it. Like it. Should we do some quick fire? Let's go the quick fire. This is a new. This is the first time we've done this. Yeah, <laughs> we've nicked it off. Gary I might, a little I bit. might fall apart here. <laughs> yeah, I might mentally fall apart here. <laughs> Mate, we might fall apart. Here. After is seventeen this, years, this is, is where like, I might break it. it. This is the hardest basic <laughs> podcast training, isn't it? Yeah. You fought for four weeks for tough. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. This is it. This is it. Um, do you want to go first? Or go? You go first. All right. Man. Yeah. What sure are you proudest of? My son. Yeah. Definitely my son, uh, followed by the Marines uh, and, and, and doing that. That was completely fundamental for, for where I am today and I think puts me in a good stead to be a good dad. What do you define as success? Definitely not wealth. Definitely not wealth. Uh, I think it's finding fulfilment, although I, I can't profess to have attained it yet. Uh, but just for me, it's it's knocking off big things that I've set out to do, challenges that I, that not everybody can attain. I think is 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 where I like to be really, yeah. or not everybody can attain that don't want to attain it. Mm. Like it for a long time, I thought success was fulfilment, but got them mixed up. Different, yeah, different things. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm on a path for you, mate. Mm. I really do. Uh, that's why I've been. Keen to come on and admire you, mate, and your, and your courage in terms of leaving rugby, absolutely. And I think as you get a bit older and you've 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 done certain things, you you just want to. I don't know. I think I'm putting all the the silly nonsense of these challenges to bed, finally, and just wanting calm, peaceful, and just chilled environment, and just yeah, just. Right there with you, mate. That's, That's it. Right Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Right there with you. Go on, um, mate. What's your favourite rugby memory, either playing or watching? I think one of the one one that stands out really is is when I were a, a young lad in in academy, and they just said, "Look, you, you're going to be playing for twenty ones," and it was quite a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a step up and short notice, and I went in and. One thing that were quite were quite significant, I don't think it's a good memory, but were quite significant, and they just said, like, the coach said, look, the guy that you're playing against tonight is coming to end of his career and just know that you're just starting and that's how you should look at it mentally. And I looked on the team sheet and it was Stanley Jean who were playing opposite me. And when you're a young lad, it was just like, bloody hell, yeah. like, oh my God, it were like, you, you finally felt like you were on your way somewhere, do you know what I mean? And mm. uh, I think that kind of stands out. And we'd, we'd done that this, Probably seems quite cheesy to you, mate, and, and, and everybody at Alt Rugby lads that are watching, it's quite cringe, but we've been on this bike ride and this bloke and his dad knocked on the door and he just said, look, can everybody sign my son's book or, or shirt or ball, 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 whatever. Uh, door shut and everybody were like, why, why they drove all this way to see us? Mm. But I didn't say anything. It was, we were like we, we, we first team lads and I don't think you'd realised how such of a for fortunate position I were in. Mm. Uh, I'd just become quite accustomed to it. Mm. Uh, by no means made it, but uh, they, they kind of stand out as being like, wow, 
That's a good one. Yeah. Mm, like that. I like that. Um, what would you say to the man who feels like quitting? Just don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, what I have learned is, is that adversity and discomfort is, is only temporary. It really isn't. You've just got to endure. And to get anything that you want requires an element of self-sacrifice, uh, often quite a lot. Uh, but just, if it's something that you want uh, wholeheartedly, it's so easy to quit. But I think living with it is, is even harder. And I, I speak to lads all the time that are like on, on, in training for Marines and some of them leave at week 20 when they've, they've got 12 weeks left. They don't realise that they're nearly there, they're on the way. Why, what are you doing? Uh, but they're leaving for short-term comfort. Uh, but yeah, just, just keep turning up. Just keep, get up, just make that next day because you'll feel differently. I was disappointed you didn't say grab a Jaffa cake. <laughs> and, and Jaffa cakes, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ever feel like you're going to quit, yeah. go and get a 16 Jaffa cakes <laughs> and just keep them. Just there. Just there, keep them there. With a bottle of water. <laughs> that is... You do need a bit of water after that, though. <laughs> like, after that, fucking hell, where's that water now? <laughs> Struggling now. Uh -huh. worse. Yeah. Right, so I've got... Um, what's your favourite TV show or film? A team when I was growing up, yeah, I loved the A team. I've, I've watched it recently. It's so it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's so cheesy, uh, but yeah, I love the A team and uh, Game of Thrones as well. I think it stands out. Love Harry Potter. Uh, I love all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, is there anything you do now that you never thought you'd do when you were a youngster? Writing a book yeah. and going to university. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, mate, if you would have. If I would have gone back in time now, said to my 12-year-old 12 12 year self, look, you're going to write a book and you're going to go to university and study psychology, he probably would have slapped nuts on me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that... That, that, shows, that shows growth, that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mental. It just kind of confirms to me that you just can't predict. You just... You just comes out favourite location in the world I've got two mate uh, Whistler in Canada is just an absolutely incredible place especially if you're fit and active and you, you love your wildlife it's just unbelievable and again for wildlife aspect is Gaul in Sri Lanka uh, in terms of like a raw kind of untouched paradise that's completely different to Thailand uh, is that it's just the Buddhist and on a morning you're driving along and door will fly open and a cow will walk out of somebody's house and it's it's just an incredible uh, experience yeah it's on my list that's on my list now um, <laughs> what is your best night out <laughs> have you already answered that <laughs> there's got to be someone else knocking around in that the best one that I've ever had or? Best one you've ever had, yeah. Best one I've ever had. 
Mate, I don't know. I love Leeds. Yeah. Le Leeds, I mean, Leeds for me is, is the best place that you can go in the UK. It's a good night out. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I mean, I had, I had, I had some at Marines and it was just, just carnage, mate. Do you know what I mean? Just, I mean, like, you'd, you'd have to do a 10 mile run next day and at seven o'clock. Lads would be like, oh, fuck the run, we're going out. Uh, you'd get back onto camp at six in the morning and they'd be like, right, you're still going running. And like lads would have to go on the run in like a pair of winkle pickers. And What's that? Uh, a pair of what? Like winkle pickers, you know, like pointy going out <laughs> shoes. <laughs> like we know yeah. lever on bottom, no like yeah. grip. Like they'd have to basically go shore in what you call your runner shore rig. You're going out close. So there'd be lads running in like tight jeans and shoes, formal shoes. And they'd have to crack 10 miles after like no sleep. Full of booze and <laughs> looking back now, you're like that was class, absolutely class, but completely detrimental to life. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. gotta do it sometimes, man. Just gotta do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can have a pint with three people alive or dead. So you've got a night out with you and three others. Who are you picking? Definitely uh, David Attenborough. Yeah, I'd love to sit down with him. Uh, God, I think Tom Hardy, quite like Tom Hardy. I think I'd like to sit down with him. He seems intelligent. Uh, interesting, not intelligent, interesting. Uh, I'm feeling sorry it's David Attenborough at this point if it kicks off or anything. <laughs> 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 no, David Attenborough, I mean, what a life he's had, eh? Bloody hell. Uh, just kind of think of actors, really. Would, would I really like to... Like Leonardo DiCaprio as well. Do you know what I mean? He's an interesting dude. I'd like to really have a drink with him as well. Who'd play you in the film when that gets made? Oh, Tom God, Hardy. can you imagine? It's got to be Tom Hardy. Yeah, is uh, it? Yeah, he's yeah. thinking he's into Marines as well. He can, he can kill bears in a lot. Oh, mate, guy. he's absolutely you nails, isn't he? Yeah, You're yeah, Bane, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah. Who's going to win? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Who's, who would win out of a fight between Leonardo DiCaprio and <laughs> <laughs> What's the best book you've ever read? <clears throat> the Slight Edge. Yeah, there's a book called The Slight Edge. Uh, and it's literally about... It came at quite a good time because I'd, I'd done a renovation down in Stamford on an old barn and it were all going wrong and I'm running out of money. Like all my life's earnings were, were going into it and it all went tits up. And uh, I was reading The Slight Edge and it just really allowed me to just to get through that difficult period uh, and be comfortable with it. And it's just about, uh, again, just doing s small behaviours uh, that people overlook, the mundane, and doing them daily. And now over time it has a massive impact in the medium term. Uh, it just really, really... I, Everybody should get it and, and read it. It's it's incredible. Like yeah. It. Good answer. All right. That's it. That's it, isn't mate, it? Mate, thank you so much, man. That was uh No pleasure, mate. That ple ple pleasure, that lads. was amazing. Pleasure. That were epic. That's one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've ever done. To be honest, I've enjoyed it. It's two hours, we've gone two hours, but time's gone. Yeah. Time's yeah. gone. Um, no, thanks. Really, honestly, it's been, been on a journey. Really, thank you. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Thanks for yeah. coming anyway. Fat Cheers, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Cheers.
Thanks very much. And yeah, just echoing everything Gareth said there. Um, get involved. Get involved with what we're doing. Get Gareth's book because it's class. I can't wait to read the rest of it. It's it's brilliant, mate. Honestly, it's really good. Um, yeah, just get involved. Look at becoming the 0.1% on Instagram. Yeah. And where else can we find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, yeah. It's like my page, becoming the 0.1%. And uh, yeah, Instagram, becoming the 0.1%. Gareth Timmins, Twitter, Gareth Timmins. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just like it. Like it. Yeah. We'll find you, mate. And um, yeah, soak everything up. Um, but yeah, you can get in touch with us at Mentality follow us and you can fire any questions that you might have for us or Gareth through any of our socials. Cheers guys. Take care. Cheers guys.